0: So Retrospectors, what historical events are we ticking off on this week's run of Today in History?
1: Well, on Tuesday, we head to the battlefields of medieval Spain to witness the very first ambulance.
0: On Wednesday, it's the anniversary of the day Coca-Cola's creator hit on his winning formula. He dropped the wine, but kept the cocaine.
2: On Thursday, the thief who stuffed the crown jewels down his trousers.
0: And on Friday, when free-spirited Danish parenting put 90s New York in a tears. We discuss this and more on Today in History with the Retrospectors. Ten minutes every Weekday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, Man fans. Ollie Man here with the 100th episode of The Modern Man. How did that happen? Here's what's coming up today.
1: Oh, God, I lied to the doctor, but doesn't everyone? The doctor, I would say 14, because I figured that that was the amount you were allowed to drink.
0: Wine o'clock, office bars, and booze-fueled bedtime stories, all in the past for the mum who gave up drinking. Plus...
2: Penis extenders sort of look like a little miniature version of those silicon guns, right. which gives you an idea of how potentially uncomfortable they can be to use.
0: Alex Fox puts penis extension devices in the spotlight, and Ollie Peart deliberately misinforms. It's all to come on this edition of The Modern Man. But first things first, Happy New Year! I am massively looking forward to being in your ears again on the first day of the month, every month in 2020. And we kick off the year with this lovely letter from an anonymous lady who first wrote to us last year. Uh, She says, "Ollie, I am thrilled to say, after you and Alex answered my question last season about sex techniques whilst trying to conceive a baby, that my husband and I followed your advice and our little baby boy is en route and due in June. Uh, That is amazing news. Congratulations. I believe that is our first podcast baby. (laughs) She also hastens to add, there were no Pismus type antics in the conception. Hey, look, whatever you guys are comfortable with, who knows, maybe if you'd have done Pismus, could have been twins. Uh, Thank you as well to everyone who donated to the show during the Christmas break. I honestly cannot tell you how heartening it was putting this episode together in the dying days of December. I mean, you can hear what it's done to my voice. Sitting in my freezing cold home office, everyone's got the flu, and then to see, unprompted, a whole load of PayPal messages pinging in my inbox uh, from listeners saying things like, Thank you for another year of The Modern Man, you're my favourite podcast, I'll give what I can. I mean, really... That means the world to us. So thank you, uh, Sarah, Matthew, Kevin, many others. We are a completely independent show. We rely on your support. So if you can contribute financially, perhaps you got given a prepaid credit card for Christmas and you have some pennies left over, uh, do chuck them our way. Uh, We are at paypal.me slash modernman with two Ns. uh, And there is a link on our website as well Uh, right in this episode you will learn about weaponization of context you will learn what cytokinesis is and you'll learn what not to wear in court let's go time for the first zeitgeist of the year your trends tested with everyone's favorite festive firework ollie pitt happy new year sir Happy new decade, Ollie. It is a new decade, isn't it? I know,
3: what's that mean? Do we all have to start wearing different types of clothes? Because like, each decade has different clothes, doesn't it? Flares in the 70s, 80s was shoulder pads. Nin- I'm not to interrupting, I want-, I want to know. Well, okay. <laughs> what <laughs> not- was the last decade 90s then? was Reebok classics, 2000s mm. was... Oh, what was 2000s? I mean, just I'm to... curious
0: what the tens was, in your view, since we're just out of it.
3: Broad-brimmed hats. <laughs> <laughs> <But>
0: anyway... <laughs> now, last decade, uh, Toby in Worcestershire tasked you with looking into the world of deep fakes. Uh, have you succeeded in making one? Yes. Okay. That's better than you thought you'd do, isn't it?
3: It's much better than I thought I'd do. Um, let's start
0: by explaining to people who don't know what a deep fake actually is.
3: A deep fake is where you take... One person's face and you put it onto another person's face in a video or image so that it looks like they're doing something or saying something else. It's artificial intelligence.
0: Applied to fake news. Applied to fake news. So it's a video of someone saying something they didn't say that's been created by a computer?
3: Absolutely. Most of us know face swap. That's a simplistic version of machine learning... Face swapping. The technology is the same. The algorithm will create forgeries of your face, and then the other algorithm will detect forgeries, and they work in competition with one another. So, as forgeries are detected by the algorithm detecting them, the forgery one makes them better and better and better until they become so good that it's difficult for you to tell the difference between somebody's real face and a deep fake face. But the way you're talking about this
0: is almost as if the technology has a life of its own, you know, Terminator style, and is creating deep fakes without anyone's permission. The technology exists mm-hmm. so that dark actors working for Russia or China or, I'm sure, the US or whoever can create political memes that look real, right? That's the idea.
3: Yes, in short. But the technology to put somebody else's face on another person's face has been around for ages, you know, in CGI and film. But you had to put dots on their face and use all CGI-type technology. But what has happened recently over the last couple of years is that artificial intelligence has improved to the level where machine learning can do it for you. So it will interpret an image or a video and layer a face onto another face. Mm. So what it means is is that with very limited data input, i.e., a photo of somebody mm. you can effectively make them say whatever you want
0: now you had one month to do this mm. and you're operating from your home in dorchester with
3: a macbook that's right yeah. how, how did it go well i've got pro video editing software on my computer so i thought i could use that but turns out i can't
0: because you don't have the processing power
3: and also the software doesn't have the capability to do that but i looked online to see because there's there's plenty of people making this there's actually some guys uh there's a guy called vfx chris oom who creates deep fakes and you can hire him to do it right so i'm thinking well if this guy does it surely i can do it somehow
0: intrepid spirit
3: that makes this feature work year (laughs) after year (laughs) so after a sizable amount of digging i found it it, it, this when i tell you the url it's definitely going to sound like i didn't do a sizable amount of digging (laughs) but trust me i did it's called Mm deepfakesweb.com right mm -hmm. and what you do on this website is you Take two videos. One is your target video where you want to layer a face onto. And then the other one is your source video that you want to take a face from. Mm -hmm. It's like face off. You upload it and you upload the other one. And then alongside each of those videos, you upload images of those people in different poses, as many as you can.
0: So hold on. Ideally, if Mm -hmm. you're doing, for example, the prime minister making a speech from a podium... Mm -hmm. should both videos be of the prime minister making a speech at a podium to try and make that transference as simple as possible or can one of them be from a completely different environment
3: a completely different environment so right say prime minister on a podium is your target video that's you want to put someone's face on the prime minister the other video can be anything of that other person so long as it's got their face you know it, it needs to be a decent camera angle it can't be them across the other side of a field it needs to have facial expression and movement and whatever but then alongside that you upload images as well so underneath each of those videos you could upload uh, uh, hundreds of images the more the merrier and what the algorithms will do is they will use those to create a model of each of those faces to then layer the face on top of the other one And this is where the computing power comes in. If that was my computer that was running that algorithm, it wouldn't be able to do it. So on this website, you pay for the computational power to be able to do that, and it does it in the cloud. So for me to do this deepfake that I'm about to show you, which is only 12 seconds long, this took four hours, and it cost me roughly $7.50. Do you want to see it? Yes. That's interesting you said prime minister on a podium.
0: Yeah. Oh, Christ. (laughs) I mean, that is unquestionably my face, as in it's my eyes and cheekbones, Mm -hmm. but on Boris Johnson's face and body, standing outside number 10.
3: So what I did is I used a source video of you uh, doing the papers with uh, Charlie State on BBC News Channel that was on YouTube... I went through God knows how many hours of you oh, on the I'm Alan so Titchmore Show. Jesus. does anybody actually watch that? They did at the time, although a oh, lot of them were
0: in residential homes and had no choice over what was on the telly.
3: You were very shiny and youthful looking back then. And, Here's uh, an
0: unthreatening young man to tell me what Google Glass is.
3: <laughs> but it was great because there was loads of source material of you. And actually, you're vulnerable because of that. So yeah, oh, loads great. Of, brilliant. Yeah, yeah, fantastic. There's loads, loads of video of you online. <laughs> uh, and I just took that source video of you talking about I don't know, Kids with Asbos or whatever. Uh-huh. And then uh, alongside this one of the Prime Minister. And the reason I chose that one is because, like you say, he's on a podium, he still stands a better chance of getting a decent model on there. Also, there's not that many images of you in different poses with your face.
0: But ho- hold on. Go on. You wouldn't in real life want, would you, to create an image of Boris Johnson with mm-hmm. my face no. talking as Boris Johnson, mm-hmm. unless it was for a joke purpose you would only want to take something Boris Johnson had said elsewhere and put it onto Boris Johnson's real body so that you can manipulate so it looks like he said something on the steps of Downing Street he didn't say. Right? Well, why so, didn't you do that? Well, or why didn't you do like a real video of me saying something I didn't say? Because, right, You be- created something completely pointless. <laughs> well, I that create- four hours was
3: a waste of time. <laughs> I created something based on the source material that was available to me, right? Uh, but without- you had loads of video of me. You just said so yourself. Yes, but... I'm not saying of- I
0: want a fake video of me like coming on to Charlie State, but you could have done that.
3: No, I couldn't have done that. This is the problem with trying to create deep fakes of politicians saying something that they didn't say. It's actually really difficult. <laughs> no, no, wait, hear me out, because... I, it's
0: probably best not to bemoan that in 2020. <laughs> well,
3: listen, it's, it's, re- it's really hard to synthesise their voice for, for, for a start. So if you want them to be able to say something in their own voice, that's really difficult. So, or, or put them in a, in, a, in a predicament that they weren't in. And it's one of the reasons that actually a lot of the deepfakes are used for something which is completely and utterly hideous, and that's putting people's faces on sexually explicit images.
0: Yeah, which is what Alex was talking about last episode. Mm. She said some celebrities have even tried to action lawsuits over their faces being put onto porn stars' bodies.
3: Yeah. So 95% of these things that are out in the public domain are of celebs' faces on pornographic videos. And that's an easy thing to do because they're not saying anything. Yes. So there's no. you don't have to worry about the voice. You don't have to worry about synthesising the voice, but it puts them into a situation that is, well, potentially quite believable, actually. Depends who it is, I suppose.
0: I mean, obviously, it must be very violating to see an image of your naked body and it's not even yours, and someone's using your image and all that. I understand all that. But equally, if there's a demand for people to watch you, you know, doing sexually explicit stuff, if people know it's a fantasy and that someone else created it, I mean, it might feel really weird
3: that it exists, but
0: Mm. I mean, the issue only comes when people think it's real, doesn't it?
3: exactly otherwise it's just fanfic well, i guess that's what i'm saying well yeah and, and actually that that is a lot of how the rest of the deepfakes are, are, are put forward anyway they're just entertainment there's an app in china called Zao, which in september it launched in september 2019 and it was the fastest growing app in china at the time it's not available in the uk at the moment but all it is is it gives you the ability to put your face onto the faces of famous scenes in films A lot of them are Chinese films that nobody's ever heard of, but you can put yourself in Game of Thrones. (laughs) When you say
0: nobody, one-fifth of the world's population. (laughs) Yeah, sure, okay, but they're not listening.
3: (laughs) But you're right. The real worry isn't the creation of these deep fakes themselves, especially even if it's on something sexually explicit because it could be, like you say, just somebody just wants to see that and it's fun. and if they're explicit about it, then it's fine. It is, if we believe it, if we create fear around it, then that gives people who are genuinely guilty... The ability to just deny well there's also
0: even if it's completely unbelievable there's also the denial aspect then links the person with the sentiment so let's say for example you manipulate the image of a prominent politician and have them denying the holocaust if they then have to tweet This video of me denying the Holocaust is utterly ridiculous. You have made the real person talk about denying the Holocaust.
3: Yeah, absolutely.
0: You've moved the conversation onto the thing that you disruptively want people to talk about.
3: Yeah, but you don't need a deep fake to do that. There's these things called shallow fakes, which are something that we need to worry about a lot more. A shallow fake is just the manipulation of media to present for a, a, different, a different idea. Or as we call it, editing. Editing, exactly. Do you remember that video of... <laughs> Shallow K- fakes. Do you, well, do you remember that video? What's of- the world come to? <laughs> Seriously. So there was a video of uh, Nancy Pelosi, which somebody just slowed down, but posted it that she was drunk. So, because it was a slight alteration in the pitch. Yes. So it's a very minor thing. And it was like you saying before, if you, you can just cast a very small amount of doubt in someone's mind, it's mm. enough to ignite a conversation, isn't it? About Which might it. reach
0: as far as her herself.
3: I've heard it called weaponization of context. So Claire Wardle is an expert in misinformation. She studies it. She studies that spread. Does she, she though? Yeah, she no, absolutely just, does. Just or, oh, right, yeah, I see. <laughs> Who knows? Yeah, she, sounds pissed to me. <laughs> <laughs> she genuinely believes that the panic over deep fakes is completely overblown. It is these shallow fakes the weaponization of context that we really should be worried about
0: okay so if the true power of deep fakes is fear of deep fakes itself let's stoke that fear tell us more about other ways of creating these memes
3: well i've created an audio clone of myself there's a couple of sites online where you can do this it creates random generated sentences which you have to read out and you can read out hundreds if you want but it needs a minimum of 30 so it's roughly three four minutes of audio and then they will take those audio recordings and create a digitized version of your own voice mm. the thing you can't do with it obviously is create a digitized version of somebody else's voice i would have loved to have had you saying lovely things about me on this podcast
0: here's hoping but you'd need uh, my participation wouldn't you to allow that to happen
3: yeah so if i wanted you to do it i uh, because the sentences are completely randomized I can't predict what they're going to say. I would, yes, I'd have to have you reading out these sentences in front of my computer, knowing exactly what they're going to be used for. Okay. What's this website called? Well, there's two. I've used Uh resemble.ai, and there's another one called Liarbird. And on Liarbird, they've teamed up with a podcasting app called Descript, which when the technology's evolved a little bit, they're just in beta phase at the moment, you will be able to edit podcasts, so stumbles in words, Using an artificially intelligent created version of your own voice. I'm trying to think what the benefit
0: of that would be.
3: Well, say that... I mean, I always fuck up on the podcast and imagine if I, you know... So then afterwards, somehow we
0: didn't notice that you fucked up in real time. Mm -hmm. And then when we're editing, we're like...
3: Oh, he didn't say this and you could just type it and I'd say it. Right.
0: That's not really editing. That is creating a false version of events. Absolutely. I mean, it is tempting.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but, you know, it, it could be useful on occasion. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I've created one of me, so do you want to hear yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, totally. Okay, here we go. Does it sound like
0: me, then? That doesn't sound like you at all. Does it sound
3: like me, then? Does, sa- Does it sound like me, then? Does sound like me, ben? No, that sounds, that sounds like a a drunk Finnish version of me. <laughs> and Nancy Pelosi. In a, yeah, in a it, cave. It does sound slightly joint, doesn't it? That was that was done on 30 recordings, 30 short sentences. That's not good
0: enough. That would not convince me. No, and even it's, if it was inserted into this conversation, that sounds preposterous.
3: Yeah, and it's also it's not cheap to do either, right? So I How much of our money did you spend on this? Well, none, but I wanted to, to do more. I wanted to evolve the voice and I wanted it to say more things. And you have to create pods, they're called, on these on, on this website, which, you know, basically you say in different sentences. But it's $500 a year just to create five of these a day. Okay. So it's a lot of money. Actually, well, it is a lot of money, but I'm trying to think of the... Like, for example... If you're a Russian government, it's
0: not a lot, is it? Well, no. I was actually just thinking in a very British media context. Mm. I was thinking, if you just made that documentary about Rupert Murdoch with David Dimbleby, <laughs> that's what I was thinking, <laughs> and you need two words... And you can't afford David Dimbleby to come back into the studio. Mm-hmm. Then actually, that would be $500 well spent, wouldn't it? Because that's probably less than his daily fee.
3: Yeah, Dimblebee would be really fucked off though. Yeah, I bet there's a clause in his contract. Maybe that's what will happen. There'll be clauses in people's contracts saying you can't use an AI version of my voice. Mm. Who knows? The thing is, this technology, as you can hear, is not quite up to scratch yet. Yes. But it's going to get better. It's going to get better. It's not much... going to get worse. Well, the, the way that the... this is what's slightly worrying about it, and I don't want to be all conspiratorial about it, but we have all of these devices in our homes that listen to us, and they yeah. do use our voices to help. In audio recognition, speech recognition. Yes. There's nothing stopping a company like Google teaming up with a company like this to be able to create synthesized versions of your own voice. There is nothing to stop that from happening.
0: Well, you say there's nothing to stop it, but (laughs) the terms and conditions of. All of those listening devices by Apple and Amazon and Google, Hmm. it does say that they're not going to use your recordings for any purpose other than their own research, doesn't it? They'd be breaking their own terms and conditions.
3: Well they could offer it as a service though, couldn't they, potentially? It could be something What would you possibly use that service for? I dunno, talking to your
0: mum? Actually (laughs) I know you're joking. And this is kind of horrifying, but talking to your kids. Like imagine oh, if that is I mean it's horrible. Yeah. But imagine if you could say to your smart speaker, mm-hmm. "Read my son a story in my voice." And I'll just go downstairs and put the chips on. I mean that is something that some people or at least you know, maybe if my baby wakes up in the night, tell it to shush using my voice.
3: Yeah, but it could also be, you know, think of people that need to do some kind of public speaking, but they're really nervous, but they're incredibly intelligent and know what they're talking about. They could actually just type it up and you could just listen to it, couldn't you? So there's there are some pros to it, I suppose. Well, that's just what Stephen Hawking did, isn't it? Well, yeah, and actually Bird have said that what they want to do is give people the ability to uh, use old recordings of their voice that have then gone on to lose their voice mm. to have a synthesized version of their voice, so they can communicate with people like they used to. And that's that's a great thing, isn't
0: yeah. it? Finally, there might be a reason for us putting all of this waffle into the cloud. <laughs> 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 Ever we lose our voices, someone can make a synthesized version of well, us. Well,
3: it'd just be nice if synthesized voices that you know people with a disability have to use wouldn't be like "hello." They yeah. want something better than that, don't you?
0: Well, Toby, I hope that answers your question. Uh, If you submitted a challenge suggestion to us in 2019, thank you. But the lines are now open for 2020. If you have a suggestion of a trend for Ollie to test on a future edition of the show, drop us a line. Visit modernmanwith2ends.co.uk and click Feedback. What would be a nice challenge for you, Ollie? What would you like to test out?
3: Oh, Eating. Drinking. <laughs>
0: that is something I hope you do on a daily basis. It's a
3: trend. People do it all the time.
0: It's growing as well. Well, uh, given the time of year, uh, our thoughts naturally turn to health, Holly. Oh, this God. time of year. Again. Uh, so- it's just... Why? Again, the endless cycle of a magazine format. (laughs) Imagine how Philip and Ollie feel. We've had loads of emails about fitness trends that you could try. Uh, For example, Ollie, Jeannie from Berkshire uh, says, I'd like to invite Ollie to participate in a CrossFit session. Have you heard of CrossFit? I think I have heard of CrossFit. She says, it's a fitness concept that can best be described as adult P.E., Two words that said horror. Shivers down my spine. Uh, Competitive workouts that combine weightlifting, cardio and gymnastics.
3: No, that's not PE. PE was blue mats and doing (laughs) roly-polies. I know that Ollie's done quite a lot of fitness-related
0: challenges before, she says, but I can guarantee this one will cause him a new level of pain and suffering. What? A suffering guarantee. That's what we like. Fran from Portugal has been in touch as well. Uh, He, I guess, uh, says, I've been hearing a lot of good things about Ayurveda. It's that, a kind of... like what? It's like an alternative health... I don't know. So I'm not it's gonna, not healing, it just pretends it is. I'm not going to riff on it. It's an alternative health thing. I'm sure people take it seriously. Fine. He'd like you to find out about that. Uh, Graham says, I would like to challenge Ollie to try out indoor rock climbing as an alternative to the monotony of the gym this year. He should feel right at home as there's a high correlation between people who climb and who are vegan. I'm not vegan. Apparently it's been accepted into the Olympics for 2020 as well. Not veganism. <laughs> rock climbing. <laughs> so you get the idea veganism's yet to be accepted it's an
3: olympic <laughs> discipline um
0: so those are three to start with mm. uh but thought we just thought we'd keep it nice and easy for you uh, this year sound easy i mean no, it does because like look, those are three yeah right in our february episode we'd like you to report back on perhaps trying out as many of those as you can maybe some extra ones i want to know basically what is the fitness trend For the year ahead Steroids Ollie thank you Talking of trends to help your health In a moment you will hear Claire's story But first time for our record of the month The first of the year It is by Cave Town It's called Things That Make It Warm And it's out now
4: My feathers seem to have taken the brunt of the storm They are feeling pretty warm finally found shelter tucked away inside a wall though for now it's pretty small you and me we can make this hole a home we can fill it up with grass and all the things that make
5: Hi, I'm Hamish. I'm the co-founder and CEO of Thriver.co.
0: Thriver sponsored this episode of The Modern Man.
5: Thriver is a finger prick, blood test that you can do from home uh, that helps you understand uh, what you can't see is going on inside your body.
0: At the turn of this new year, man fans, why not give your health an M.O.T.? We've caught hundreds of people who've got
5: reversible early stage diabetes we have hundreds of people who have uh, high cholesterol that they're now uh, tackling to try and reduce their cardiovascular risk we've got people who had um, floor level vitamin and mineral uh, imbalances that have been feeling the consequences in fatigue or poor sleep that have turned those into positives because they've taken an action to to remedy those problems
0: get 50 percent off your first thriver kit thanks to us just visit thriva.co and use the code MAN50.
5: You know, we get people writing in just to say, thank you for reminding me why it is that I'm sticking to this particular diet, or you open my eyes to how much control I can have over my health, which for us is fantastic.
0: That's thriver.co and use the code MAN50 for half off your first home blood test now. Would you like this year to cut down on the amount you drink? One in five adults in the UK now claims to be teetotal. Among 16 to 24-year-olds, it's closer to one in four. But what about for those of us who are parents? Is there something particular about the role of booze in bringing up kids that maybe makes it harder to quit? Claire Pooley is a mum of three and a teetotaler but she certainly didn't used to be.
1: I would pick the children up from school. I've got three kids. Back then, they were between the ages of 11 and 6, so 11, 8 and 6. I would make their supper, supervise their homework, all that sort of thing. And by the time I'd done a lot of that, I'd be feeling a bit stressed out and exhausted by the whole day. And... um as a result, while I was cooking supper, I would usually crack open a bottle of wine. And, you know, I used to think back to those days of Keith Floyd, the the TV chef. Do you remember how he used to sort of pour glasses of wine constantly while he was uh, while he was he was cooking? And, bon vivant. Exactly. And I would channel my inner Keith Floyd and uh, and have a few glasses of wine or at least one or two while I was while I was cooking supper. Um, so and what then, kind of time is this? So that that was probably. I mean, I used to try and wait until six p.m., which I thought was a reasonable time to open a bottle of wine, and then my husband would come home from work at about eight thirty, and uh, and I would often produce a full bottle of wine from the cupboard and open it for us to share. Sort of rather pretending that that was the uh, the first first glass of wine that I'd had
0: rather pretending or actually pretending
1: well well, you know I wouldn't outright lie I would just imply that it was it was the um you know it was it was the first bottle of wine I'd opened Um, describe
0: to me that feeling of opening that bottle of wine at six o'clock whilst the kids are doing their homework and you're preparing dinner because because it's not just about opening it at that point is it it's about anticipating it
1: yeah and you know what I mean the I think part of the reason I started to realise that I had a problem is because I would watch the clock, you know, and I would look at the clock and think, oh, my God, is it still only 5.30? I got more and more dependent on, you know, having that first glass of wine. And and when I did, it was a sort of huge relief. And I felt my shoulders relax, I mm. felt much less tense. And, you know, it, for me, it was like the way of morphing from... Uh, daytime to, to evening, it was sort of, you know, it was me time, you know, and I, I you know, I, I felt like a L'Oreal ad, it was all about sort of, you know, because I'm worth it. And, you know, I deserve it. And, and I thought everybody else was exactly the same, because I look at my social media, and everybody would be joking about wine o'clock.
0: Let's talk about that. Because um, I, I do exactly what you've just described, maybe I don't have two glasses, mm. but I possibly have one before the kids are in bed. And it is, for me, a way of delineating daytime to nighttime, just like you said. But it's also a way of sort of separating my daddy status from my evening, grown-up, I'm-going-to-watch-stuff-on-Netflix status. Yeah. And it's just, it's that natural transition that it it helps me feel like I'm shedding one set of clothes and becoming something else. But for mums, more than dads, it's actually kind of fetishize this whole sort of mummy time, uh, yeah. gin, gin o'clock?
1: When I look back, I realize that sort of when my children were tiny, it was at the era of Gina Ford and, you know, sort of trying to be the perfect mum. And, you know, everybody felt they had to have their kids in a perfect routine and they had to bake cupcakes and they had to make <laughs> you know make uh, you know toys out of recyclable materials and all that sort of stuff and and then the mummy bloggers came along and it's um, a backlash isn't it and there was a big backlash exactly and Let's they all honest, said all you know look you know it's hard and it's not yeah. easy and we can't be perfect and everyone said yay thank god for that you yeah. know we're being honest about how difficult it can be being a mum and you know keeping every all the 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 balls in the air um, but what went alongside that honesty and that, you know, admitting that, that life actually was, was quite tough is wine o'clock mm. because that was our reward. It was like, life is really tough, but hell, we've got gin, you know. And I understand that. And for God, you know, I'm the last person in the world to judge anybody who who feels like that because that was me for years and years and years, you know. And the problem was that, you know, it got me, in a it ended up getting me in a fair bit of trouble, but...
0: What trouble did it get you in?
1: Um, well, you know what? I mean, if you think about somebody who is addicted to alcohol, you have this image in your mind of, you know, somebody who, uh, is, whose life is, is completely out of control and who does really dreadful things and, you know, who gets caught drunk driving and, you know, uh, falls uh, falls down in into gutters and, and what have you. And, you know, I thought I was fine because my life wasn't like that. You mm. know, I was... Like just like every other mum that you would see at the school gate, um, but it was starting to affect me in sort of in a myriad of different ways that. Um, you know eventually I realised we're all related so you know by this stage I was drinking a bottle of wine a night during the week and I was drinking more than that at weekends probably two bottles of wine at weekends and if I was going out you know I really let my hair down so you know I was probably drinking ten bottles of wine a week between seven and ten depending on, on what I was up to
0: was, what was your weapon of choice, by the way? Was there a particular brand or style of um, wine? Or? You
1: know what? I, it had to be relatively expensive because then I thought I was a connoisseur and not just a lush. <laughs> <You know? laughs> so I drank good quality wine. And again, um, that's
0: a way of separating yourself... Yeah, but God, lighting. it
1: cost me a lot of money. And I never added up how much money it costs because I, I saw it as a staple like, you know, loo roll or, or bread. Mm. Um, but
0: that's £300 a month.
1: Yeah. yeah. And, you know, I can't afford that. And, you know, I really, when I quit drinking, it didn't take me long to pay off my overdraft, um, which, uh, you know, which was a benefit of what I hadn't really factored in. Anyway, So, so I was drinking about 10 bottles of wine a week And um, the impact of that was, it was a number of things, actually. I mean, to start with, I was a really terrible insomniac. So I get to sleep really easily. In fact, I'd normally fall asleep in the middle of a movie or before the end of a program and, uh, you know, uh, on the sofa. And, um, and then I would wake up at about 3am, tossing and turning and uh, hating myself. And I wouldn't be able to get back to sleep again until just before the alarm went off. And I did that every night for, you know, what felt like a decade.
0: Were you hungover when you woke up?
1: No, well, you know what, now I look back, and I think I probably had a low level hangover for sort of quite a number of years. But I was so used to feeling sort of below par in the morning that, you know, unless I'd been on a real bender, I really didn't notice it. So yeah, I mean, I didn't like mornings, and I'd wake up feeling a bit there. And I I wouldn't feel sort of on good form, really, till about 11am. So I was a terrible insomniac. I was anxious a lot of the time and i thought that alcohol was helping i thought you know if you're stressed and anxious then having a glass of wine helps relieve that and actually what i started realizing is it was the alcohol that was causing the anxiety in the first place
0: what anxiety were you feeling
1: um just that general sort of tense feeling of of sort of you know i weirdly you know, I used to, when I was younger, I was a real high achiever. So I had a really big job in advertising for, um, you know, years. I was, you know, I did things like, you know, when I was 19, I went traveling around the world on my own. And, you know, I, I, nothing really scared me. And I got to the point in the towards the end of my drinking days when, I, you know, it's just talking to somebody on the phone that I didn't know would be you know, would make me feel tense.
0: Were you a full-time mum?
1: Yeah uh, I, I wasn't I quit work when my youngest uh, was born so I worked when I had two children and my third was born and I just juggling all those balls became impossible so I thought I'm going to stop work for a few years while my children are really small.
0: Having a high-pressure job in advertising That's quite adrenalizing, Yeah. And then to go from that to being a full-time mum, I mean, don't get me wrong, I realise with three kids, that's a full-time job in itself in many ways. But do you think you were slightly using alcohol there to fill the gap?
1: Much as I I loved being at home with the kids, and it was a real privilege, um, and I'm really pleased I had the opportunity to do it, it was really hard. And, you know, I I lost myself for quite a long time. Pooley is um, is my maiden name. And I used my maiden name at work and everybody knew me as Claire Pooley. And when I stopped work, I, um, you know, people only ended up using my married name and I was always just John's wife or I was, um, you know, the kid's mother. Um, You know, I felt like I wasn't really me anymore. I was always just um, being, you know, referred to in relation to somebody else. And, you know, my glass of or several of wine at the end of the day was my way of finding myself again. Mm.
0: Um, I'm guessing when you worked in advertising, that was quite a drink-fueled environment. Oh, God, yeah. Yeah.
1: Um, And and bizarrely, you know, I thought when I quit working, I would stop drinking so much because I thought part of the reason I was drinking so much was because of my job, you know. So uh, in advertising, when I first joined in the early 90s, you know, we had a bar. In in fact, we didn't just have one bar in the office. We had two bars in the office, one for the directors (laughs) and one for the regular folks, and uh, you know, I had a massive expense budget, and part of my job was um, taking clients out, and um, you know, and and entertaining, yeah. and you know, drink was absolutely part of the culture. And of course, I mean, back in those days, it was all Bridget Jones's Diary, and it was the, the you know the ladies from Ab Fab and Sex and the City, and you know, it felt like it almost felt like your feminist duty to. Mm to you know drink a lot and it was the year of the ladette as well you know so it was all about keeping up with the blokes and it's like if they can do it we can do it too and we can do it with knobs on Mm. um and you know actually what i wasn't taking into account is that the guys were drinking relatively weak beer and i was drinking you know strong chardonnay (laughs) and you know and you can't really equate the two and also there's you know it just affects women more than it does men
0: so you put the kids in bed, mm. you're having dinner with John, mm-hmm. you're having another half a bottle of wine then. Mm-hmm. Are you drunk?
1: Um, well, you know, that's the that's a terrible thing is that, you know, alcohol is a drug just like any other drug and like any other drug over time, your tolerance builds up. So, you know, when I was a teenager, I could drink a large glass of wine and feel completely plastered. You know, But by the time I quit drinking, I could drink a bottle of wine and not feel that drunk. You mm. know, I feel relaxed. Um, and, you know, but I certainly didn't look drunk. And I didn't feel that drunk. You know, I just felt, yeah, I just felt more relaxed.
0: How honest were you with other people around you I mean you talked about not really hiding it from your husband but when you went to the doctor and they said how many units a week are you having
1: oh god I lied to the doctor but doesn't everyone you know so uh, the doctor I would say 14 because I figured that that was the amount that you were allowed to drink so uh, so yeah I, I lied to the medical professionals and actually one of the things I love the most now is having a, a doctor ask me how much I drink and being able to say nothing you know um they always look rather surprised. They look more surprised at that than than they, you know, they, they did when I, you know, ever admitted drinking more than 14 units. So, yes, I lied to, to medical professionals. Um, I'm not sure that I overtly lied to friends because, as I said, I felt like everyone was doing the same as me. So I was more likely to joke with them about how much I was drinking. They quite possibly thought I was exaggerating and I wasn't.
0: I mean, the thing is, it can be a pleasant break from the inane tedium of, of looking after small children you know I sit sometimes watching CBeebies and I think God, oh, this would be much easier with a glass of wine on the go but I guess when you do that you're you're missing out on some of the parenting
1: well you know um, we talked about how uh, that glass of wine at the end of the day sort of marks the time between kid time and adult time the problem is when you start doing that before the kids have actually gone to bed then you 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 know adult time and 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 kid time sort of collide in a way that isn't particularly helpful. So, you know, so I found, for instance, that, you know, if I was reading a bedtime story, I would race through it as quickly as I could, because I want to get that. back to my glass of wine, yeah. you know, and I would turn over two pages at a time and have the kids go, no, 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 you've missed out the bit about, you know, the ruffalo and the mouse or yeah. whatever it was, that started happening more and more in my life. So so at weekends, for instance, if we had friends coming around, I would try and engineer the program so that the kids were doing something in one place and the adults were doing something somewhere else so that you know we could drink and let our hair down and the kids would be happy. It sounds awful but I started spending more and more time running away from my own children and you know given that I'd given up work to spend more time with them I felt awful about the fact that I was trying to engineer less time with them. You know, I remember going to um, collect my youngest from school and she was just learning to read. And her primary school teacher said to me, you know, I, it was something really funny happened today. She said, I was listening to Maddie read and uh, we were reading a book called A Cup of Tea. And I said, does mummy like a cup of tea? And she said, oh no, mummy likes a glass of wine. And the teacher went, ha 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 ha. And I just felt awful. And every Christmas present, my kids gave me was a bottle stopper or you know, a corkscrew or something. <laughs> and actually, you're drinking tea from a yes. mug which says... It says,
0: um, I'd rather it was wine o'clock. Exactly. This is the a mug that you from, <laughs> just got out of your cupboard.
1: <laughs> yeah, that was a present from my kids in the days when, when uh, I would always rather it was wine o'clock.
0: So it was um, the sneaking feeling that your children were identifying you as a drinker.
1: Yeah, and they and that they thought that was perfectly normal. And then the real crunch moment was the morning after my... 46th birthday party so and it had been a a lunch party with adults and kids and it had gone on all afternoon and it had gone on into the evening and I'd sort of been drinking for several hours and I woke up the Sunday morning feeling like death and um, I said to you earlier that you know I Uh, generally I didn't notice hangovers because I was so used to them but this was a really bad one and I went down to the kitchen and my kids were all up and making a huge racket so you know one of them was playing a musical instrument and one of them was watching one of those you know stampy videos and they were you know there was a whole a whole load of noise and I had a terrible headache and I knew that the only thing that was going to make my headache feel better was more alcohol and I I had this hard and fast rule that I never, ever, even at weekends or on holidays, drank before midday because that would make me uh, an alcoholic. And I wasn't an alcoholic in my view. And I looked at the clock and it was 11 o'clock. And I then looked in the cupboard and there was a bottle of red wine that had about an inch left in it. And I thought, God, that's fate. (laughs) I so rarely put anything back in the cupboard that had anything left in it that it just felt like it was sort of you know it was there for precisely this this purpose and um, but I thought even my kids would um, balk at the idea of seeing mummy drinking wine at 11 o'clock in the morning Um, so I got a mug out of the cupboard and I poured the wine into the mug and I drank it and I did almost immediately start feeling a bit better and then I looked at the mug and it said on the mug, the world's best mum. <laughs> and that was the moment, that was the last drink I ever had. And that was nearly five years ago. Um, because I, I just, you know, I, I just felt so awful. And it was that moment where I'd sort of, I felt like I'd crossed the boundary, you know, and I thought, God, if I can, if I can start ignoring even my hard and fast rules then, you know, things are going to start going horribly wrong.
0: Did you tell anyone?
1: I was really ashamed. I felt horribly guilty for having let myself get into this situation. And I felt really alone because I thought that I didn't think there was... Sorry, I feel quite emotional talking about it. I didn't think there was anybody else like me out there, you know. And I thought um, I thought everybody else was able to cope with alcohol and I was the only person that couldn't. And... Um so I didn't tell anyone what I did was um I thought initially I thought I'll write a diary because um because when I was little that's what I used to do and I I always loved writing and I found it very sort of you know, I, I, I found, find it quite therapeutic. So although I hadn't written anything for years. So I thought i will write a diary and I thought, well hell, you know, this is this is the the twenty first century. I shouldn't actually write a diary, I should write a blog just for myself and I had no idea how to go about doing that. And I couldn't ask my husband, funny enough, worked in IT, but I couldn't ask him because I didn't really want to admit what was going on. So I googled how do I start a blog and, um, and I managed to set up this blog um, anonymously because I was, really didn't want anyone to know it was me or what was going on. So I, I mean, called myself. it
0: so interesting that you weren't hiding the drinking apart mm. from that final drink. But you were hiding the intention for sobriety.
1: Yeah.
4: What's
0: the psychology there?
1: It's it's weird. And you know what? It's not just me. I, I've discovered subsequently that a lot of people feel that shame. I think it's because in our society, alcohol is so normalized that, you know, you don't feel... You don't feel, uh, you know, shameful about drinking because everybody does it, but not being able to cope with the drinking, you know, you're made to feel like that's your fault, Hmm. whereas actually alcohol is a drug. And the fact that you become addicted to it really isn't your fault. It's the fault of the drug. Um, you know, when you, when you give up smoking, people congratulate you and they go, you know, well done. You're so brave and so sort of clever. And, and you give up alcohol and they think you're a bit weird. And I think also I hadn't, uh, uh, you know, in that, those early days, I hadn't got my own head around it. And I hadn't really, I couldn't think about whether or not it was a permanent thing, um, uh, because that was too scary. So, you know, I, I didn't feel like I was able to discuss it with anybody in real life, because I hadn't worked out in my own head, quite what was going on. So for me, writing about it was a way of sorting out my own feelings about the whole thing.
0: Did you think it would be permanent? Did you think, yes, this is the watershed moment, I'm not going back? Or did you in your heart think in two months time I'm bound to be drinking again.
1: Um no, I I've I'd given up before for weeks at a time and for you know I'd done dry January and I'd done sober October and that sort of thing. Although I always started late and gave <laughs> you know packed it in early. You know I knew I could I could give up for for you know a few weeks. Um, but this you know I always used to go back to drinking again and I used to go back to drinking even more than I I was drinking at the beginning and I knew that this had to be different, but Alcoholics Anonymous talk about taking it one day at a time. And the reason for that is if you're, you know, addicted to, to alcohol, the idea of spending the rest of your life without ever being able to have another glass of champagne at a wedding or whatever is is initially quite horrifying. So you just To protect yourself you try not to think too far ahead and now I can quite happily think about the rest of my life without booze but it took me quite a long time to get to that point.
0: So you started this blog?
1: I called it Mummy was a secret drinker and um, I just every day I just wrote about what was going on in my life and I was you know I was completely honest about it because I didn't think anyone would read it and certainly I thought if they did read it they wouldn't know it was me. Um, so, you know, I just talked about the realities of, you know, what it was like going to a party for the first time without drinking, um, you know, what did
0: you do the first time you went to a party?
1: I faked it for quite a long time. And just because again, I wanted to avoid the conversations because I didn't feel ready to talk to people about why I wasn't drinking. So, So how did you do that? If it was a drinks party, I'd have something in my hand that looked like it might be alcoholic, even though it wasn't, um, even if that was just sparkling water, with with a you know with a with a lemon and if if I was going to dinner I would let somebody pour me a glass of wine and then I just wouldn't touch it Mm. and it's amazing how few people notice you're not drinking um if you if you don't say anything because they're all sort of you know so busy drinking themselves they don't notice that you're not actually touching your glass of wine at all so so for quite a long time I did that
0: when were the moments you very nearly buckled
1: Oh, gosh, there were quite a few. Um, Initially, parties were what I found the most tricky. um, And it was so easy to think, you know, just one won't hurt. But what I do is, is play that forward in that, you know, I'd been there so many times before that I knew what would happen and that one at a party would lead to... Two, the next time I went to a party, and then three, the next time I went to a party, and before long I'd be back at a bottle of wine a day. It it sounds sometimes when I tell people my story, they sort of you know it sounds like when I gave up, it was the first time I tried, but I hadn't. You know, I've been trying to moderate the amount of of alcohol I was drinking for years. So by the time I quit, I knew in my heart of hearts that I was never going to be good at moderating and you know i was never going to be the sort of person that could just have one glass of wine once in a blue moon and um you know and not not end up back where i'd started
0: and people did find your blog
1: and yeah pe- and people
0: did identify with you you weren't alone
1: no and and that was the most incredible feeling i remember when i first had a, a message on you know saying um saying hi thanks for sharing your story you know you sound it's exactly like me and i remember just being amazed that there were other people out there and it turned out there were thousands and thousands of other people out there because my blog even though i i didn't promote it just sort of took off and you know i i had uh i had messages from people all over the world um saying you know your story is my story and um you know i realized that you know there are i think there are a few things in life that unite us wherever we come from and whatever background we're from, whatever age we are. And one of them is parenthood. You know, you find that, you know, if you have a small baby, you can go anywhere in the world and talk to any other mother or father with a child the same age as you and have absolutely loads in common. And uh, addiction is the same, you know. However different we appear on the surface, you know. If I talk to anyone who has been addicted to anything, I know that we'll have so much in common. But back then, I I didn't realise that, and it was a real revelation.
0: You couldn't just chuck all the wine out your house, though, because your husband was still drinking, presumably.
1: Uh, yeah, and you know what? I'm I'm sort of I'm sort of glad that he was, partly because. You know the world still drinks, and if I'd made, if I'd made it so that you know my home was somewhere where there was no alcohol, I think I would have found it more frightening going out. I think I could easily have ended up becoming a bit of a hermit. Um, so I thought it was quite important to get used to there being alcohol around and just get used to dealing with that. And you know he, he, he drinks you know, moderately and sensibly, you know, which did, you know, irritated me hugely (laughs) initially. But now I also think that's quite good for my kids because, you know, they see, they have two pretty positive role models now, I think. They've got me showing them that, you know, it's perfectly possible to live a very fulfilled and and very happy life without alcohol. And they've got their father showing them how you can drink sensibly and moderately and, and, you know, within the government guidelines.
0: Why could he do that and you and lots of other people listening to this like you can't?
1: Um, You know, what I've learned is there are two sorts of people in the world. There are people who are natural moderators and there are people who are all or nothing. You know, I had friends who could quite happily be social smokers and yet I ended up smoking 20 a day before I quit. And, you know, I'm the same with crisps, I'm the same with chocolate, I'm the same with, you know, but there are upsides, you know, I'm the same with life, I'm the same about throwing myself into motherhood, into friendship, um, my career, um, everything else. So, you know, I I think being, if you're listening to this and you know, you're an all or nothing person. And that feels like the end of the world. It really isn't. I think some of the very, very best people I've ever met are addicts, because we're addicted to, you know, all parts of life, the the, the bad as
0: well as the good. You've come through this after a few years, and you call yourself now an addict. But you wouldn't have called yourself that when you started.
1: Uh, Oh, I did. I always called myself an addict, but I never called myself an alcoholic. Um, And I still don't call myself an alcoholic. Talk me through that. Um, Well, I just, I think part of the reason it took me so long to quit drinking is because the, all the imagery around and emotions around alcohol addiction are so horribly negative. So, uh, you know, and Alcoholics Anonymous have done a phenomenal job over the years helping millions of people, but... I felt that the language of, you know, having to say, stand up for the rest of your life in a you know, church hall and say, I am an alcoholic and go back over your history and talk about being in recovery and having a disease. And all of those things just felt to me to be so incredibly negative. And I thought, I don't want to live the rest of my life defining myself by a negative. You know, I gave up smoking 15 years ago, and I'm a non-smoker. I don't feel the need to tell people I'm a nicotine-aholic and mm. I have a disease and, you know, I have a problem. I'm a non-smoker, and that's wholly brilliant. And I'm now a non-drinker, and that's also wholly brilliant. And, you know... I, I think having all of that that language and that imagery stops people admitting they have a problem until they've really hit hit rock bottom, because you just don't want to define yourself like that. And I don't think it's necessary. I mean, I, I do think if if it helps other people, that's great. And if anyone wants to call themselves an alcoholic, then and they find that useful, then you know, absolutely fine. It's just not what I wanted to do.
0: Does the drinks industry have? Something to answer because they are quite tightly regulated. They all say enjoy responsibly and all this stuff on their posters and whatever. But there are connections we can all make with events and what you drink. You know, it's summer, so you have a PIMS. It's a wedding, so you have a glass of champagne. It's, you know, you've finished work, so you go to the bar and you have a Guinness or a Corona. That's how they're marketing. They
1: they, they do. And, and, you know, like you know the way smoking has gone where they've taken the branding off all the the packets imagine if you know instead of having these beautiful bottles with their uh, beautiful labels and connotations that you know the only way you could drink alcohol was as ethanol from the chemist you wouldn't feel the same way about it but it's the same stuff effectively mm-hmm. And, um, you know, what is deeply ironic is I spent 20 years in advertising and I did actually for a while. One of my clients was Diageo and and I uh, was responsible for, you know, for advertising one of their wine brands. And which I loved, you know, and I had no—I didn't think there was any issue in trying to persuade people to drink more wine. Um, And uh, and now I look back and I think, well, you know, that was, uh, as I say, deeply ironic.
0: Be honest, do you miss anything about drinking?
1: Funny enough, I've got so used to dealing with tough stuff without drinking that, and I realise now that actually dealing with tough things is easier when you don't drink. So, you know, eight months after I quit drinking, I was diagnosed with breast cancer. And if I'd still been drinking at that point, all the wheels would have fallen off. And the fact that I wasn't drinking really helped me get through it. And it helped me get through it without, you know, while putting the kids first and making sure they didn't realise how, what was going, you know, that... Uh, well, they knew what was going on, but in a way that was manageable for them. And I could never have dealt with it the way that I did if I'd been drinking every day. So, you know, I find dealing with tough stuff not a problem at all anymore. And I find I'm so much braver, I'm so much more confident and fearless about everything. The time I do think, God, you know, what should I do now? Is when something really brilliant happens. Mm. You know, for instance, um, I wrote my first novel after I quit drinking. And when I got my publishing deal, it was, you know, it it was my biggest ambition come true. And, you know, just having a piece of cake doesn't feel like it really (laughs) cuts it, you know. And those are the moments when I think, God, this is the point at which I feel like there isn't anything that quite replaces that, you know, sod it. Let's drink a bottle of champagne and really let our hair down. Um, and what I've discovered is that you just need to think more carefully about how you celebrate. So in that instance, what I ended up doing was booking a lovely massage and, you know, and I went out for a nice meal with the, with my husband and the kids. And, you know, it's but you need to put more thought into it and it takes more time. It's not as quick and easy as popping the cork out of a bottle.
0: Claire Claire Pooley. She's written an excellent book about her experiences as well. It is called The Sober Diaries. I've put a link to it on our website. Uh, and if you want to give up drinking, Claire has supplied me with a list of links she recommends. I've put them on our website too, in the blog post for this episode. Just head to modernmanwith 2 Coming next, Alex Fox on penis pumps. That's after this. <laughs> Time for Foxhole 2020, the next generation. What have you been up to, Alex?
2: I went to a massive conference all about sex toys called Aerofame. Um, it's got, Aerofame? Yeah, it's the biggest collection of people who sell sex toys, lubes, sexual health products from all over the globe, and they get together in Hanover in Germany. Uh, and I spoke to all sorts of folks there, including a, a chap... Um, who's called Vincent, who's from, uh, from a company who, who are called Gangbangster. Uh, can you guess what they might manufacture?
0: I <laughs> wouldn't like to.
2: Well, I've brought along a, a little brochure Oh, a, a you, sales Annie. brochure. Yeah, yeah. Thank you,
0: okay. Wow. Big black cocks.
2: Really big black cocks. Some of them are actually three huge black cocks joined together. They have a new range. One of them's range... in the shape of a boot. <laughs> so it's yeah. kind of like a
0: Dr. Martin on one end. I think that's
2: from their army-themed collection. So it's a military boot, which also has a massive dong on the end. They make the biggest dildos and butt plugs on the globe. um, They have a range called Anal Conda, which are essentially very long bum snakes with with sword handles on the end. Uh,
0: On which? uh, Time for our sex question of the month. Uh, It is from a gentleman who has chosen to remain anonymous, who says... Alex, I keep getting regular emails about non-surgical penis enlargement methods. Uh, I keep getting mixed reviews, he says. Do non-surgical methods actually work? Aren't penis pumps temporary and I'm looking for a permanent solution? My member is above the average side, but I wanted to gain more length and girth, if it's at all possible. Hope you can help.
2: This is a timely question. Is it? <laughs> yeah because regular listeners to the show will be predicting my answer right now they'll be going alex fox is going to say you should be happy in your own body i'm going to warn about the dangers of herbal pills and lotions and potions if you
0: don't like your penis talk to it explain how you feel
2: it is absolutely right that there is no pill or cream or lotion or gel which is going to make your penis bigger and certainly not permanently bigger um, but I did go to a presentation recently by some people who make penis extenders and penis pumps, uh-huh. which are two of the main non-surgical methods which are purported to give penile growth and expan- expansion.
0: Okay, and a penis pump, I know what that is. Penis extender? Is well, that like a vice?
2: I'll tell you all about it in a minute. Have you ever changed the um, silicon around, around your bathtub? <laughs> Penis extenders sort of look like a little miniature version of those silicon guns. Right, yeah, gotcha. Which gives you an idea of how potentially uh, uncomfortable they can be to use. Mm. But yeah, at this presentation, the people who were giving it, obviously they were a brand, so they were going to extol the benefits, supposedly, of their products. But not only did they claim that what they were selling could give permanent results, which was something I wanted to look into... They also did raise the point that for some people, changing your body, and making your penis bigger, isn't about self-image and about uh, hating the body you're in. It's a fetishistic thing. And they just want to see how engorged they can get temporarily hmm. because the sight and feeling of, uh, of, a, of a cartoonish, almost caricature cock, uh, gets them off. And I thought, well, I've never actually acknowledged... That for some people, having a bigger penis isn't about self-hatred, it's kind of about self-love. Mm. So maybe we should explore penis extenders and penis pumps and, and at least have a look at uh, what's out there beyond the dismissal that I've frankly given them in the past.
0: Yeah, okay. So what do you reckon?
2: Well, first off, I uh, spoke to a chap called Jez Bechmuller who works for a company called Male Edge and they make penis extenders. First of all, Ollie, just like you, I wanted to know, well, what, how does a penis extender work? What do you even do with it? Um, they, They're they sort of like, they're quite big contraptions. They're, like, they're like fairly heavy looking plastic and, and metal things.
0: Intimidating, as you imagine, for the small penis man.
2: Yeah, and you're supposed to insert yourself into them and then, Um, to kind of lock them around your glands some of them come with little rings that sit um, inside them and act as cushions because they can be I think quite uh, quite unpleasant to use may allege say that some people like the feeling of all this paraphernalia hanging off their penis um, but the way that they are designed to work in inverted commas is that they exert traction so they stretch and folks like may Alledge say that by repeated long episodes of exerting this tension on your todger mm. that you will induce a process called uh, cytokinesis which is where um, you essentially stretch your knob you produce more cells and they reckon that if you do that for long enough
0: yeah but how long
2: well, this is the not thing. Not how
0: long does your cock get? How long do you need to put in the work? Because uh, this reminds me of when you were talking about people who want to regenerate their foreskin after circumcision. It's like, I get why for some people that's a thing, but not to the point where you can be sitting for two hours a day with a thing on your knob. So what, what are we talking here?
2: We're talking a long time yeah. and longer than two hours. They reckon that you Longer than need- two hours yep, a day? Yep, they reckon you'll need... <laughs> A minimum of four to five hours a day, but they recommend up to six to eight. You need to be able to do 400 hours of extension wearing over three months. uh, And they reckon that that will get you between two and four centimetres of extra length when you're erect.
0: I mean, short of retirement or paternity leave, how is this going to work in an office environment or on your commute?
2: Well, they say some men wear them at night.
0: Okay, yes. But you have
2: to be a really still sleeper because otherwise these devices fall off. Um, they say that for most guys, they just wear them around the house in their downtime. Find me a man with six to eight hours of downtime. And yeah, maybe he does want to extend his penis just because he doesn't have anything else going on in his life. And does I it suppose. fit
0: under like a um, pair of pyjamas or would you have to be naked?
2: Uh, they say that you have to wear kind of... Um, loose-fitting,
0: loose-fitting trousers. Loose-fitting
2: trousers. They reckon that they did have one guy who tried to oh, wear... It's
0: extraordinary, them- isn't it? You could be going to a council office today to try and negotiate your- <laughs> (laughs) Council tax and the person sitting behind the desk could be wearing such a device
2: well they said they had one customer who did feel comfortable wearing the device at work and felt that it was subtle enough to get away with it and that he was a barrister um but at at one point in court this um this device just fell out from the bottom of his trouser leg so yeah
0: okay but they have proof do they that it works
2: Well, they've managed to sell these devices to over 400,000 customers who they say are satisfied, and they have a variety of data, both feedback from their customers experiments and research they've carried out themselves and supposedly third-party research now I looked at an overview of this Um, they uh, may allege are really big on saying that there was a piece in a urology journal called the BJUI that supported the potential use of penis extenders I took a look at that research it does say that they can potentially be helpful in straightening the penis if there is a curvature if it's Mm. got a curve that's a problem Um, but this particular piece does say that more information is needed before it can give a a definitive idea of whether you're going to get a permanent result i mean it strikes me
0: that if you're someone who is you know insecure about your penis and so you found a device online to help you with that particular issue you're probably not the person who's going to write into the consumer advice department saying it hasn't worked for me no, you're going to quietly google something else
2: yeah interestingly as well may allege say that men who reported having smaller penises to begin with gave feedback saying that they'd had greater and faster results so it might be something about self-perception um and also uh, the comparative change between someone who's smaller to start off with than someone who's larger if you look at an overview of other research that's out there it's a really mixed bag um, There was a 2011 study I found that said traction devices like these penis extenders could increase penis length by up to an inch if worn for at least nine hours a day for three months. But then a 2016 report said that there were no significant effects of traction devices on penis length or girth uh, and said that more studies were needed. So these definitely, I can't say that they're guaranteed to work. If you're somebody considering trying this, and it's not cheap either. These devices cost anywhere between about 100 to £200. Pounds. I would think hard, long and hard about your reasons for doing that because um, it's estimated that in about 50% of cases, men are doing this not for their own pleasure and their own satisfaction and not even for their partners, but due to something called the locker room effect. I,
0: I knew you were going to say that, yeah. Yeah. So it's about being judged, often about straight men being judged by other straight men in a place where they're all naked. Yeah. Which probably goes back to school or something really quite innate.
2: However you want to interpret the origins of that feeling, it's not a positive one, is it? This isn't somebody doing something to their body um, because they think it will make them feel great, it's because they think that other people will be impressed by them or or that they don't feel like they're good enough for others at the time. Obviously, you need to use these devices very, very gradually putting great strain on your knob is not a good idea.
0: Is there any sort of DIY version of this? You know, are there a little exercise that you can do? Is it worth it when you go for a wee stretching it a bit? Is there anything you can do like that that's a minute a day rather than two hours a day?
2: Well, there's two things. Um, There is a a system of massage known as jelking, which is... Word of the
0: week. (laughs) I I don't care what it is. I just am pleased to know the word.
2: It's, It's essentially trying to stretch yourself by hand, are often using creams or Vaseline or something like that. Um, Again, if you look at research into that, which is fairly scant, it's not conclusive as to whether it works. The other option is a penis pump. Now, most of these are designed to give you an erection or to help you get an erection. They're aimed at people who have erectile dysfunction. Mm-hmm. However, they can give a temporary enlargement, engorgement effect because they're, they're essentially sucking more blood into your wanger. So
0: would that be length and girth, like our question... Oscar is is looking for here?
2: Yes, it will, depending on how hard you suck. You need to be careful not to suck too hard. Some pumps um, have air in them. Others, like Bathmate, um, and I spoke to Kerry Middleton from Bathmate, um, they use water so that you're displacing um, the water in the pump in in order to fill your penis up with with air. They reckon that that gives less of a chance of things like bruising or blistering Mm -hmm. through uh, through. Exerting suction on the penis that isn't as evenly dispersed, um, so they reckon their water-based pumps are a little bit safer. They also say that if you use a bathmate pump for around fifteen minutes a day for five days a week, um, that you—they reckon that, that can exert a permanent result. Can you hear the big Riddler question mark that I am dropping over that particular assertion?
0: Actually, I was just imagining a challenge for Ollie Pitt. <laughs> <laughs> uh, thank you for that alex if you have a question of sex to run past miss fox what do you need to do with it
2: take off your penis extender and use your 13 foot wang dang hammer and head to the website modern and hit feedback
0: well that is very nearly it for this episode of The Modern Man, but there is just time to appoint a new ambassador. It is Nick from Ivanhoe, whose girlfriend Jess writes, Ollie, we absolutely love your podcast. It's given us hours of entertainment on boring car journeys, inspired interesting conversations, and kept us laughing, sometimes crying. Over the years, I'd love you to consider Nick for Mambassador of his home village of Ivinghoe, Buckinghamshire, as he'll soon be turning 30. And what better way to mark the occasion than with such an honourable title? Jess, I agree. Short of a peerage, I can think of no better honour. Nick, I now pronounce you Mambassador for Ivinghoe. Congratulations, you're on the map. Until next time, our theme music is by Django Django. I've been Ollie Man, the producer, Matt Hill. And we'll see you on the 1st of February.
4: When you leave to go fly across the sea I'll be waiting here with Junior and the flowers that we
0: So, Retrospectors, what historical events are we ticking off on this week's run of Today in History?
2: Well, on Tuesday,
1: we head to the battlefields of medieval Spain to witness the very first ambulance.
0: On Wednesday, it's the anniversary of the day Coca-Cola's creator hit on his winning formula. He dropped the wine, but kept the cocaine.
2: On Thursday, the thief who stuffed the crown jewels down his trousers. And
0: on Friday, when free-spirited Danish parenting put 90s New York in a tears. We discuss this and more on Today in History with the Retrospectors, 10 minutes every week day wherever you get your podcasts.